Good afternoon and welcome to the Cato Institute. Uh, I am Mark Calabria, our Director of Financial Regulation Studies here at the Cato Institute. I'm also uh, privileged to be serving as the moderator for this, today's event. Uh, however, before I begin, uh, I'd like to recognize His Excellency uh, Manuel Sager, and who's going to come up and give us a, a very brief welcome on behalf of uh, Switzerland. Thank you, Mark, and thank you, Cato. Thank you, Richard, Ron, for hosting this. Uh, oh, these are lights are bright. <laughs> yeah. sir. Um, for for hosting this event, it's uh, it's a great pleasure that uh, we are able to do partner here with uh, James Briding and, and Cato and the the Swiss Embassy to sing one's country's praises. To tell a good story about your country, of course, is firmly established in the job description of uh, every diplomat. Being a Swiss diplomat, I'm in the fortunate position that, it, that this is not all too difficult. Switzerland is, has been, even in, this, in these uh, financial and economically difficult times, we have been uh, able to, to do reasonably well. Um, we have now, for several years in a row, Switzerland has been ranked number one in terms of competitiveness and uh, innovation by the World Economic Forum. Switzerland is also number one in economic freedom in uh, Europe. And if a country name was a brand in 2012, Switzerland would have had the, the best brand in, in the world. Switzerland also has the highest number of uh, Nobel Prizes per capita in, in the world. But of course, we also know that singing one's own praises has a somewhat limited effect. It's better, it's much more valuable if somebody else takes that job, somebody who doesn't get paid to do that, and uh, somebody who has uh, even made a, a personal effort. To, um, to, to say good things, in this case, about Switzerland. And James Friding is just such a person who has uh, written a book, Swiss Made. It's, uh, it's a, a wonderful book. It's a wonderful book about uh, Switzerland. And uh, he has made a personal effort. And uh, I can tell you he doesn't get paid, certainly not by us, <laughs> to, uh, to, to, for, for having written that book. It is a a great opportunity to, to be here, and I would like to, to thank James Briding for having, having written that book. It's, it's, uh, today we are so much used to, to uh, Twitter messages, and our attention span is, is about 140 characters long. But uh, I encourage you to, to read the book. Don't take my word for it. Um, read what Larry Summers and Paul Volcker have said about the book, and the favorable commentaries that uh, they have given. Or better yet, read the book. And uh, it is my, my great honor and uh, pleasure now. I don't know what the protocol is. Is it back to you, Mark? Back to me. OK, all right. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining us this afternoon, and thank you for your interest in, uh, in Switzerland and the story James Briding is about to tell you. Uh, also mention, as, as per usual after our uh, afternoon events, we're having a reception, and I also want to thank the embassy and, and, and thank the ambassador. We're going to be having some uh, Swiss wines and Swiss beers at the reception, so we'll be able to keep the theme uh, going for the evening. Uh, until we get there, however, we're going to try to accomplish two things with today's panel. First of all, uh, Mr. Bryden is going to talk about uh, his books, uh, Swift Made. Uh, and he's going to talk about the factors and characteristics that have made Switzerland a financial and commercial success. Our second panelist, uh, Cato's own Richard Rahn, is going to discuss Switzerland's success in the context of Europe. You know, what has Switzerland done well? Uh, what are the lessons for other European countries? Can these lessons be applied? Which ones can, which ones cannot? And of course, not just lessons for Europe, but lessons also for the rest of the world. But before we begin, let me introduce, tell you a little bit about our panelist. As mentioned, James Breeding is the author of Swiss Made. He is also the founder of Nascent Capital and was formerly Managing Director of Templeton Investment Management. He previously also served as a Senior Manager for PricewaterhouseCooper. James has also been elected as a Fellow by Harvard University Center for International Development. As mentioned, our second panelist is Richard Vron. In addition to uh, serving as a Senior Fellow here at the Cato Institute, Richard is Chairman of the Institute for Global Economic Growth. 
He also writes a weekly column for the Washington Times, which I greatly encourage you to read, probably one of the most insightful columnists that I know personally. Uh, of course, Richard is also no stranger to the importance of commercial and economic growth. He previously served as vice president and chief economist for the Chamber of Commerce of the United States, as well as the executive vice president at the National Chamber of Foundation. Uh, also, Richard Ford American is well-placed to talk about Switzerland, having been there literally dozens of times since the early 1970s. Uh, we are very uh, honored and lucky to have such a distinguished panel. I'm now going to turn the podium over to James. Okay. So thank you, Ambassador Sagar. Thank you very much, Cato, for hosting this event. And thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for coming. Uh, I thought what I'd do would just sort of run through a few slides to capture sort of the highlights of the book. And then there'll be a chance for discussion and question and answers afterwards. Um, it's actually my second book. I, I wrote a book called Wirtschaft von der Schweiz. It was published by the Neue Zürcher Zeitung. It's a leading sort of the New York Times of Switzerland, I think is a fair description. And I co-authored that with Gerhard Schwarz. And um, this is my second book. I'm the, the sole author. Um, it's coming out next week in the United States. Uh, the German book was a bestseller in Switzerland. And in Europe, this is the best-selling book about Switzerland in English, in the English language. Um, so, so far, it's sort of a good start. How do I? There we go. Um, it is true that the government was not supporting the book in terms of any money. And it actually, it wasn't until after the book was published that we really got into touch. We did have some sponsors that helped pay for the research, so Nestle. Uh, the Sanders Foundation, um, um, Anova Foundation, um, Rolex, a number of companies actually provided funding for my fellowship at Harvard and it was really the Center of International Development at Harvard um, that sort of provided the this tremendous treasure of access to knowledge, et cetera, that um, I think was quite helpful for the book. In terms of the genesis of why I sort of got started writing the book is that you know, I felt that there was just a, a massive gap between sort of what people perceive Switzerland to be and what it really is. Uh, I think the reason for this perception deficit is because, you know, there's several reasons. One is that because of this sort of, you know, Switzerland was the crucible of the Protestant Reformation. Zwingli came from Zurich, Calvin lived in Geneva, and there's a, there's a sort of a deep tradition of, of not showing off and not talking and being quite discreet about things. So they're, they're not particularly good at about explaining what they do about anything. Um, uh, the second thing is that most of the businesses and most of the sort of source of prosperity of Switzerland come from so-called B2B businesses. So companies like ABB, Solzer, um, probably about 70% of the GDP are these sort of companies. And these companies don't really have a need to talk and explain to people about what they're doing. There are a few distinguished companies like Nestle, Swatch, uh, that people are very familiar with because they're B2C businesses, but these B2B businesses tend to be very low-key. Um, the third factor is that, um, you know, people go to Switzerland. I mean, how many people here have been to Switzerland, for example? Um, and it confers sort of a false notion of the com company country because they, they'll spend two or three days and, and very few people sort of take the time and really sort of study the country. Um, so to a large extent, it's a very superficial um, perception of the country. And the final factor is that the Swiss are just pretty bad about selling themselves. Um, Ambassador Zager is an exception, but most Swiss are just not naturally born salespeople. So you have the, a lot of sort of distortions, and, and the sort of examples include the Lonely Planet Guide. This, if, you, if you Google Amazon, these are sort of the books you'd find, Lonely Planet Guides, Hiking Guides, or sensational books about money laundering. So I thought that was sort of interesting that you had such a big difference between perception and reality. Um, in terms of John Stuart Mill, famous, famous philosopher, <coughs> felt that any regime, sort of the way you would measure its success, efficiency, is its ability to achieve the greatest good for the greatest number. I think against this measurement, the Swiss have been you know, really head and shoulders above any country, um, just to sort of support that. This is the GDP per capita of Switzerland. And of any country that doesn't have a resource endowment, it achieves the highest per capita of GDP in the world. Um, but I think more importantly and more impressively is that how it distributes that income, and particularly in a day and age like 
today where there's a, great, a growing awareness and concern of the amount of inequality that exists in society and all the studies that show that with increasing inequality you have all sorts of sort of ancillary problems, violence, um, political tension, instability, etc. The Swiss have been remarkably good about this. I mean, this particular analysis compares the, the Swiss distribution of income compared to the U.S. for the top 10%. It looks very similar, even more acute for the top 5%, for the top 1%. But it's also very similar to other countries, you know, Russia, Brazil, Indonesia, um, the U.K., etc. So this is a phenomenon that's just not associated with this country, per se. And I think this is probably the more um, important achievement against the two measures. And the book goes to some extent to try to explain how and why they've managed to achieve this. As Ambassador Sager was saying, that you know, the, the Swiss have been particularly innovative. Uh, it's a small country, so in order to sort of be successful in something, you have to displace a, sort of a guerrilla competitor. So they had to compete against Americans, against Japanese, against Germans. And to do so, you have to have a product or a service which is better, different, cheaper. Um, and the way to achieve the, the sort of the broadest value is to do that through superior knowledge. And a lot of that came from sciences. Uh, and this is, just gives you an example of the sort of, it, it has the highest per capita number of Nobel Prize winners in the world. Um, ironically, many of these people were not Swiss. Uh, uh, just about every company we studied, Nestle's, Rolex's, the pharmaceutical companies came from, from the Huguenots. Most of these companies had a decisive immigrant who formed uh, an important part of the company's development, if not the development of the company. Um, and I thought what was interesting about this, this immigration is that it's not just, I mean, on the one hand, you have sort of Swiss people that are living abroad, so that you have a, a, a lot of Swiss people, it's the highest percentage of, pe of people within a country that live outside of this country. And then they have the highest percentage of people living within the country of foreign origin. In fact, if you take the sort of the people of foreign origin, if you add the second generation, they, they call them secundos, it's around 32%. And then on top of that, you have the sort of 7 or 8% of people, Swiss people living abroad. And I think these people are very interesting because they provide touch points. They, they really understand where are the opportunities, where are the risks, what are the developments, as opposed to people that, that are not sort of migrating in and out of countries. Uh, this was Professor Har Howard Gardner. I don't know if anybody reads him or follows him, but he, he did a work in 1993 called Creating Minds, where he studied 20 different people within the United States across a different range of achievements, cultural, industrial, scientific. And this is the, 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 the common denominator he found among these people was the fact that they had, that, they had to be displaced he said, you must go to a very different kind of place if you want to think in a new kind of way. And I think it kind of sums up exactly what, an, what a migrant is. If, if someone's immigrating, they tend to give up their family support structures, their friends, their family. They're going into a new country. They tend to be less risk averse. And, and they define themselves in terms of their achievements. And, and I think um, it's not just the case in Switzerland. If you look at the United States, um, Sergey Brin is a Russian Jew who founded um, Google. You have um, eBay, which was founded by an Iranian. Jeff Bezos grew up in Cuba. So this, this concept of immigration is, is quite important in terms of innovation anywhere. But it, it, it really sort of plays the fore in a place like Switzerland. I think another unique feature about Switzerland is that um, the Swiss companies just don't seem to die. Um, Joseph Schumpeter said it was actually quite a healthy thing to have this concept of creative destruction. And if you look at, say, in the United States, um, you know, the average age of a company here is 15 years, and, and it's broadly considered to be quite a healthy thing when these companies sort of are falling down and being replaced. The Swiss don't believe that. And, and if you look at it, it has the biggest density of Fortune 500 companies in the world. So companies like Nestle have two of the largest pharmaceutical companies, Swiss Reinsurance, Zurich Insurance, two of the largest banks. You have about a, you have a four or five of the biggest machine companies like ABB, Solzer, Reiter, etc. So it, it, it's a garden which happened to grow much bigger, thicker oak trees than other parts of the country. And I think we also try to sort of point out in the stories why that was and, and how they were able to do that. Uh, 
The other thing is just how they allocate capital. We looked and we compared Swiss companies relative to their peers. So say Schindler who produces elevators, we compared that to Otis. Uh, we, compared, we compared Nestle to Unilever, uh, Roche to Glaxo, Merck, um, uh, Bristol Myers, etc. And they had almost twice the return um, over a 30-year period. And they managed to achieve this return by having substantially lower leverage debt. Um, now, these two metrics for anyone who studies economics, the return on equity and leverage, low leverage, um, is a pretty, pretty decent way to sort of determine whether a, company's, a country is effective at allocating resources and capital. And the Swiss do it bar none better than anyone. There's a lot of social institutions that help the Swiss garden, if you like. Um, I just, we didn't have a, we don't have a lot of time to get into these in detail. But actually in the education system, um, people who, the public schools are considered to be a superior choice. Uh, if you go to a private school in Switzerland, it's considered to be somewhat of a failure. Um, the police force, it's a, it's a, you know, low levels of crime. I think walking the streets and places like Basel, Bern, Geneva, et cetera, people feel remarkably safe compared to most places in the world. Uh, I think the neutrality is sort of quite famous to people, but there's a, you know, there's a lot, of, lot to be said about avoiding wars. That was a decisive feature, particularly in the sort of post-World War I, post-World War II period where they were considered to be a very reliable supplier of goods and also opportunistically you know, quite able to provide either the allies or the Axis powers with products that were um, desired but didn't, they didn't want to buy for political reasons from the enemy. Um, the social security uh, system is fully funded. Each person has an individual account. It's not uh, a notional account, but it's actually, you, know, you can, you get a statement every year saying how much money you have in that particular bank account. Um, the healthcare, uh, they don't have an unfunded Medicare or entitlements issue and it's universal coverage, although it is a privately funded system. Um, and then the infrastructure, I think anyone who's been to Switzerland compared to, um, I just came from, actually was in the airport today in um, both New York and, and Washington, I think it's quite remarkable to see the difference in the quality of airports um, between Switzerland, but lots of other countries, and frankly, in the world, particularly emerging countries. So I think, you know, the, the taxpayers get a, a much bigger bang for their buck. And I think a big reason for that is that uh, the architecture, the sort of ecosystem of the way the Swiss organize themselves is, is very much a bottom-up uh, architecture, not too different to this country um, prior to the Civil War, where the states and the communities had a much um, larger proportion of uh, power. Um, in the case of Switzerland, tax, actually tax assessment and tax spending is pushed down so the lowest common denominator, you have the community, then you have the, 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 the regions or the cantons, and then the federal government. There's a deep suspicion to actually have the, the federal government involved in anything. So it's, it's almost a last resort to have to deal with, the, to, to have the federal government take care of things. I just call this telltale signs, a sort of anecdotal statistics that give you a bit of a, a picture. Uh, the public debt is a percentage of, percentage of GDP. This includes entitlements in the U.S. is 203% versus Switzerland of 44%. Uh, how important the government is in terms of uh, the GDP, it's very low in Switzerland. So it's, again, this very decentralized and very lean form of government. Uh, exports as a percent of GDP is, is it, for me, a very important metric on vitality and viability. And it's almost half of the GDP in Switzerland. As Ambassador Saga was saying, the global, competi global competitiveness, the Swiss are number one. They've been number one for the last three years, very stable. The US is number seven, and they're down from number two. Five years ago, they were down from number five. So it's declining competitiveness in the United States. Percent of congressmen who are lawyers, you know, almost, almost half of the people in, <coughs> representing the, the government here are, are one particular sector. Um, I think the Swiss would have a difficult time having any, you know, 49 percent of firemen or um, hairdressers or any particular sector representing the entire government. Um, in the case of Switzerland, it's just 6 percent. Uh, 
then there's this, this issue again of, of sort of the, the school system, which is funded by the government. And, and you know, in the, in the case of the US, there's really most of the elite people go to private schools. I, I just read a statistic recently in the UK that less than 3% of the congressmen, members of parliament in the UK actually went to the schools that the government's designed to provide. So in a way, they're, they're paying twice for the system, but they're not even using the system that's being provided by the government. Um, this next point is about sort of the importance of mothers uh, putting pressure on their children. All, all the studies show that this is an important factor in terms of achievements in schools. You have the Asians, which are very strong, but the German and the Swiss people also have mothers that are quite concerned. I, I sort of use this you know, little bit sensational term, tiger moms. And then the amount of hours to complete a tax return, uh, 22 hours versus four hours. Just a couple of sort of stories, uh, if you're interested, buy the book, but <laughs> um, in terms of innovation, this is a story of how tourism sort of came about in Switzerland. Uh, fellow on the, on the left is um, Batrut, who owns the Palace Hotel. He also, at the time, owned the Kulm Hotel. And at that time, tourism was a, a very short season, economically not very interesting because it just lasted three months in the summertime mainly aristocratic English people who came for mountain climbing. And he tried to convince sort of 15 English people during the summer to come back in March and placed a wager that if they were to come back in March during one day at least during their stay, they would be able to wear short sleeve shirts. And if not, he would uh, pay for their way and, and also have free hotels. And, you know, they all came and lo and behold, it snowed the entire time. <laughs> And English people being who they are, they were drinking and quite a lot to keep them busy. And uh, they took the sort of tea trays made out of silver and they slid down on their rears to a place called Cellarina, which is just below St. Moritz. And that's the Cresta Run, which is a very famous sort of old prestigious club and still the oldest toboggan in the world. And that's really what sort of kicked off the, the, the whole winter season, which extended the season from three months to seven months. And... From an economic point of view, that makes you know it makes it's a much more compelling business. Uh, it was actually sort of Swiss households that ran hotels. One of them was called Caesar Ritz, who was quite good at running hotels, and he decided to expand this hotel chain. And today, the Ritz hotels that you see around the world were actually founded by the Swiss person. Um, Probably some of you people recognize Nicholas Hayek, who uh, most people perceive to have invented the, the swatch. It's actually not true. We, I did a lot of research and talked to all the different, success always has many fathers, I learned, but I managed to speak to all the different people involved in the project. He actually came two years after the project was launched, but managed to sort of manage perceptions within the media. Um, and I think the the real interesting thing, which sort of came across during the course of my study, was this fellow called Jean Robert. And what was really happening was that the Japanese created a, a battery operated watch, which completely sort of made the, the Swiss watch in terms of telling time obsolete, because a, a mechanical watch is just inherently less precise to, compared to an electrical battery operated watch. Um, and the Swiss had a, a long tradition of apprenticeship and designing watches and to last generations. So there was a, a, a huge ethos and mindset. Um, so the Swiss watch industry was going bankrupt. They lost about 60 to 70% of their employees and they were in a really a state of desperation. Um, and Ernst Tomke, who was sort of brought in to turn around the company, they had just done two pilot projects for a very boring looking black plastic watch and a gray plastic watch sort of that you might think were designed for the military. In fact, most of the Swiss watch industry was run by former military people from Switzerland and it was sort of designed uh, like the Roman Empire. And these two pilot projects failed miserably and he was coming back from San Antonio. One was in San Antonio and the other one was in Osaka. And he met with um, uh, someone from Bloomingdale's who actually was running the buying department of Bloomingdale's and sort of a Brooklyn, New Yorker, uh, tough um, buying type. And, and he looked him in the eye and he says, you, you've got it all wrong. You know, watches are not about telling time, it's about fashion. So he went back home and he contacted this, uh, his friend who was actually running a company called Fogal, which converted a very boring underwear company for women 
into pantyhose and very elegant, expensive pantyhose. And you can produce a pantyhose for about $1 and sell them for $30 to $60. So there's fantastic margins. And this fellow on the left actually was a pantyhose designer. And he was the one who designed the first 385 watches of Swatch. And it wasn't that long ago that people lined up like they do for iPads and iPhones for the, the new Swatch to come out. So it was a real change of mindset for people in the watch industry. Also, the, the, one of the biggest elevator producers in, in the world is Schindler, just outside of um, Luzerne. It wasn't that long ago you needed a personal pilot to, to operate uh, a lift. And there was a fellow who de developed this algorithm to channel traffic according to the, you know, the destination so people could be channeled into lower floors, medium floors, and high floors, which makes a huge difference in very large buildings. And that sort of propelled them from number 12 to number two because of that technology and that invention. Um, actually, the person who designed it was an orthopedic uh, engineer. He designed artificial hips, and he was the one who came up with the algorithm. Has anyone used Doodle before? for managing meetings or you have there we go so it's a very similar it's also a swiss company and they actually borrowed from this algorithm to develop this technology it's if you want to design if you want to organize a meeting for 25 people and you want to find the common denominator for that particular meeting they have a it's a software program that was developed by the swiss to do that i mean chemistry was a very important sort of source of prosperity and wealth sort of unprecedented you know, if you think about the evolution of economies, first it was food, companies like Nestle, and then you had textiles for clothing, so you had to eat and you had to keep yourself warm. Um, but demand, to a large extent, is, is constrained. There's only so many loaves of bread or yogurts or coffees you can drink and so many clothes you can wear. But the whole idea of chemistry um, amplified the amount of demand and, and possibilities in terms of products. Here's two examples. One was uh, the fellow on the left is Leo Stanbach. He produced Valium, which is the first blockbuster, block, blocks, blockbuster the first drug that achieved more than $1 billion in sales. And unlike most products, technology typically replaces something. There was never a product that actually was designed um, for depression. Uh, it doesn't exist in the market. So it was an example of how you actually create an innovation for a derived demand, a demand that doesn't exist, but you can create the demand. It was called in the, the Rolling Stones famous song, Mother's Literal Helper. Uh, Roche was on the border of bankruptcy and um, he was actually uh, hired as he's a Polish Jew. And just sort of as an anecdote, uh, Roche was the only company, there were four major pharmaceutical companies at the time, Siba, Geige, Sando, which is now called Novartis, and then Roche. And Roche was the only company that hired Jews. And uh, the, the two Jews they hired, one was Leo Stanbach, the other one was Tadeusz Reichstein, who created vitamin C. And because of this sort of being able to recruit these Jews from Nazi Germany, Germany used to be the dominant in, um, player in, in the chemistry industry. Actually, textbooks up until the World War II were in the German language. Even if you were French or English, you had to know German in order to study chemistry. So they actually benefited tremendously by recruiting these, these Jewish chemists from Nazi Germany. And Roche, from these four companies, Roche is now bigger than all these three together, largely on the back of these Jews that were, were recruited um, from that time. Uh, the story on the right is, 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 doesn't have quite a happy ending, but uh, very interesting. His name is Paul Muller, and he was a in his office trying to discover uh, a dye stuff because the actual chemistry industry originated for producing colors for, um, for textiles. And he went away on vacation, he came back and he noticed there was a lot of dead flies around this particular color that he was designing. Um, and he actually realized it wasn't a dye stuff at all, but it was an insecticide. And not just a, a, a sort of a mediocre insecticide, but a brilliant insecticide. It was very cheap, it was odorless, and rapidly effective, and it did not have to be digested, it just had to be in touch or in contact. Um, and this actually was a company called Geige, which later became Novartis, most profitable product for a period of 15 years. He won the Nobel Prize in 1948, which was about 10 years later, for a, for a product called DDT. Um, it was considered to be a miracle, uh, product, 
And it was then about 15 years later that Rachel Carson wrote the book Silent Spring and the, and the evidence came out that this particular pesticide um, had a much more broad spread effect on ecosystems because of it, it was even more effective than people thought. So it just goes to show you, and I actually, if, if anyone's interested, you should just Google Paul Muller and read his speech, his Nobel Prize winning speech, because he actually, in that speech, which was 15 years before the, the book of uh, Rachel Carson, he actually said, he admitted that we, we, though we know a lot, there's a lot we don't know about the relationship between the constitution of a compound and the ultimate impact it could have. So in a way, in his Nobel Prize speech, in a very humble way, he was predicting that um, there could be this risk, which I thought was fascinating. This is just a quick slide, and I'll, I'll wrap it up here, but um, all these achievements are terrific, but um, in a way, the world has changed considerably. Um, these two, these are signposts of, of towns. Um, Holderbank is where a company called Wholesome was started, which is the world's leading producer of cement. Um, and Bulle is, is a company which produces about 80% of the machines that are used for ma uh, producing pasta. So it's just about every pasta you eat comes from a machine from this small town. Typically, these towns employed over half of the people. Um, and you can sort of very cleanly trace their origins back to where they came from. And on the right, what I, what I sort of use is aircraft carriers as a depiction because you have companies, Google has their biggest operation outside of uh, the U.S. in Zurich. They call the people who work at, at Google Googlers. In Zurich, they call them Zooglers. Um, but you have companies like Google, but also these multinational companies that increasingly see Switzerland as a place where you can sort of come and go and refuel. Um, but if you don't have the competitive circumstances in place, you know, like a chessboard, they will allocate you know, people, technology, investment two places which will um, uh, derive the highest um, perceived return. So in that sense, the world has changed and it, it poses additional challenges on any country. And I just wanted to sort of close on that note. This is uh, one of the more famous immigrants in Switzerland, um, Albert Einstein. He actually uh, failed his entrance exams to the ETH in Zurich, and he wrote his four most important thesis as a junior um, um, patent administrator in Bern, had a very difficult, difficult time getting a job. But I quite like this one where life is like riding a bike. You must keep pedaling to avoid falling. So that's it. Yep. Turn it over to Richard. That was uh, most interesting. But you forgot to mention Switzerland's most famous product. Now, we're in a Hayek auditorium here, and it wasn't named after the Hayek of Swatch. It was named after Friedrich Hayek, Friedrich Hayek who formed the Mount Pelerin Society. And the Mount Pelerin Society was named after Mount Pelerin in Switzerland, which is right up above Vevey. There's a little tram railway you can take up from Vevey up to there, mm. and it was in the old Mount Pelerin Hotel, I didn't know that. <laughs> um, which has now been converted into something else. Um, <clears throat> but many of the Cato people are, of course, members of the Mount Pelerin Society, which is the leading um, association of like-minded individuals who believe in classical liberty. Most of them are economists, but we have philosophers and historians and uh, a few others. <clears throat> um, I have spent a great deal of time in Switzerland over the years. I first was there when I was a student. And then uh, starting in the early 1980s, I got to go there on a regular basis back when Faith Whittlesey was our ambassador. At that point, I was chief economist of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, and I had worked closely with the Reagan administration on Reaganomics in used to send me around the world to talk about Reaganomics, and Faith would have me over to Switzerland uh, frequently to talk to the Swiss business community and other people. And I really fell in love with the country, and I've been, uh, haven't had involvement with Switzerland in all the years since, so I get there usually uh, three or four or five times a year. I have a friend who is a Swiss banker in Geneva, 
And we had often talked about the relative success of Switzerland. And he said to me, you know, much of the world thinks we Swiss are so much smarter than everybody else. And he said, that's not true at all. He said, because of our particular cumbersome political structure we have with the cantons and the communes and, of course, the national government, he said, by the time we can get anything passed, other countries have already passed and implemented it and proved it to be a bad idea, so we don't bother, <laughs> which is how they basically miss socialism. Um, as you pointed out, Switzerland, by any metrics, is by far and away you know, the top of the world on things. We here at Cato produce a book, along with the Fraser Institute, called Economic Freedom of the World, uh, which if you, if you don't have, you can get it online or you can get it here. But looking at the ratings of Switzerland, and it's number four in freedom in the world. It starts off with Hong Kong. But um, I have been concerned, Mr. Ambassador, that Switzerland is beginning to slip a little bit. Now, the U.S. used to be number six, and we're down to number 19. Uh, Switzerland's only slipped a little bit. But in terms of size of government, the government is getting bigger. It's nowhere near as big and as oppressive as ours. The legal system is not as solid as it once was, and that, I think, is in part due to the pressure of the U.S. government, the Europeans, the OECD, and the others, which keep trying to undermine particularly the financial system in Switzerland. Here at Cato, we have been keen defenders of countries' right to have their own financial systems, including the right of financial privacy. But Switzerland has been forced by basically the financial imperialism of the U.S. and the Europeans to move away from a lot of its traditional strengths. Um, Switzerland has also moved down a bit in ranking in terms of freedom to trade. And uh, it still ranks very high. And when I'm being slightly critical here, it's that among friends. The Swiss, as you know, I think you know, most governance takes place at the, at the town level or the commune. And so in terms of marginal tax rates, the federal maximum marginal tax rate personal is only 11.5%. But some of the uh, cantons, like Geneva, have actually fairly high rates. And you can get up to a combined uh, income tax rate, including Social Security, up as high as about 41.5%. The corporate tax rate in Switzerland at the federal level is only 8.5%, but it can get as high as 24% depending on the particular commune. Again, this is all well below the U.S., and there's still a great model for us. Uh, in 1990, I had chaired the Bulgarian transition team, and I used to use Switzerland as the model. Coming from America, I didn't want to really use the U.S., but Switzerland and Bulgaria are roughly the same size, had roughly the same population. Bulgaria actually had a lot more natural resources. And I said, if you could model yourself after the Swiss in terms of institutions and laws, that you would do far, far better. And uh, the Bulgarians, they've always had trouble with some of the rule of law, <laughs> but they have made great progress in a lot of other areas, and I think in part following the Swiss model. In fact, the Bulgarians now have a 10% corporate and personal income tax, even better than Switzerland, and far better than what we have here. Uh, like the Swiss, the Bulgarians have a very low debt GDP ratio. In fact, they, uh, the Bulgarians and Estonians have the lowest in Europe. The question is, though, what can Switzerland show the rest of Europe? And it should be obvious to the fellow Europeans, to everybody around them, the, particularly the French and the Italians, as well as, of course, the Germans and others, that the Swiss model works better than their model. But instead of the French adopting a Swiss model, they keep trying to impose uh, French rules and restrictions on the Swiss. Uh, the problem is major, major European states, if anything, have become more centralized. Uh, France, everything is centralized basically in Paris. 
uh, Germany has a somewhat more decentralized structure uh, and has been doing relatively better than France. But if the Europeans would move to, I think, the more decentralized structure, which we really had in this country up to the time of the First World War, or even up to the time of the Great Depression, where people paid attention to that, what we have is the Tenth Amendment, which basically says, except for those very few things that the federal government has responsibility for, like defense, everything else ought to be done at the state and local level. Well, unlike us, the Swiss have stuck with that, and uh, they have done much better. Now, how you convey this to the fellow Europeans, I don't know. Again, it should be obvious, but of course, the political forces always like centralization and control. And rather than the Swiss being able to sell their model to, say, particularly the French or the Italians, the pressure is for Switzerland uh, to look more like France, which would be an enormous mistake. And I applaud my Swiss friends for resisting it so well. I know we want to have time for we want to have some time for questions, so I won't go on much longer here. But one other thing that we Americans and the Swiss agree on is that people ought to have the right to own guns to protect themselves. And um, if the I, I notice in much of Europe, gun ownership is frowned upon, and that's another reason I'm very fond of the Swiss because you still preserve that essential liberty. Thank you. Thank you, Richard. Well, I think we have uh, time for a few questions. I would ask uh, that you uh, identify yourself in affiliation. I would also ask that your question be in the form of a question. Uh, with that, we'll open it up to the audience. Uh, here in front. My name is Richard Osborne. Um, I don't have a current affiliation, but I I used to negotiate international double tax agreements for the United States. Um, and my, my, my question is, is the, is the Swiss model of decentralization being copied elsewhere in Europe anywhere? I mean, we, I, I know, for instance, that there's going to be a referendum um, <clears throat> in September of 2014 to give Scotland independence. I mean, that's a form, and I suppose one alternative would simply be de 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 more decentralization. But can you talk about any of the other countries in Europe uh, to the extent that they are, are purporting to try to follow the, the Swiss model of, of decentralization? No, I, I think it's actually going the other way around. Um, I think throughout history, you, you see that power, once it sort of congregates and grows, it, it sort of percolates to the top. This is what happened with Julius Caesar. And I think one thing about the Swiss model, which is very effective, is that they're very suspicious of centralized power. And there's a lot of checks and balances in place which prevent that sort of percolation up to these centralized locations. Um, if you take France, 60% of their, their economy is, is government spending, uh, which doesn't allow much for the private sector. Um, I think you know one of the reasons I wrote this book is that I thought it might provide some sort of a mirror to places like Europe and the U.S. to, to look to the Swiss model as an example of maybe how it could be done. Of course, it has to be adapted, and there are parts which are not um, replicable, etc. But um, I, I think one of the big issues we have right now is that uh, the sort of centralized form of governments, representative types of democracies. Um, are not trusted and effective. So I hope it stirs that sort of debate. I know, Richard, you mentioned Bulgaria. I don't think there were other examples. Well, right now, with the financial crisis we have in Europe, there are some pressures to have lesser centralized states. Uh, Spain comes to mind uh, mm. with Catalonia and the Basque region and others wanting to split up or at least they're gaining more power at the expense of the central government. Uh, I think over the long run, this could be beneficial. You mentioned Scotland, but we've also, had, of course, Wales has gained some additional power. Um, and, I, I, and I think in, even in Italy, the tensions between northern Italy and southern Italy, you probably know more about that, Mark. There was decentralization there in the no. 70s. That was a small amount. Um, so I don't think we ought to give up. I think it was the failures of central governments become more apparent for those of us who believe in more devolution of power from central governments down to 
localities or state levels at least, uh, there is hope. Certainly a concern. You don't have a question, do you, Bert? Just, 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 just one, one, one thing about one thing about Scotland quickly, because I, I think it's interesting that if you look at the evolution of Switzerland, it was it was very similar to Scotland. You know, both countries were really at the forefront of the Protestant Reformation. You had Adam Smith, you had uh, David Hume. You know, Glasgow was sort of a Shanghai of today. If you, if you read the biography of of Adam Smith, it's it's sort of depicted as being a very industrious place. And it really wasn't until the Scots signed the Treaty of the, the Treaty of Union with with England, where they decided to sort of join forces together, um, that the, the past then diverged, and Switzerland sort of kept its and continued its, its its pathway as an independent, decentralized state. Where and then Scotland, of course, joined forces with England. So I, I do think it's an interesting study, and um, I think supports sort of the findings that I had. But comparative institutional design. Yeah, uh, Bert over here. Wait for the microphone, please, Bert. Bert Ely, a banking consultant here in town. Um, I was interested in your uh, comments about public education and the uh, uh, gather. Sorry, I was interested in your comments about public education. Uh, I, I can hear fine, but it's not working. Yeah. I can hear you fine, but it's not working, I don't think. Yeah. Okay, ah, now it's working. Uh, uh, to start over, uh, Bert Ely, a banking consultant here in town. Uh, it's interesting your comments about uh, public education and the high regard it's held in um, uh, relative to uh, to private schools. It's very much the opposite of uh, of, of this country. And I'm interested in what it, is it about uh, public education in, in Switzerland uh, that makes it uh, so attractive and I gather so effective and are there are there ways in which it differs from how public education is organized uh, in this country? For instance, do students have some choice as to which public school they go to? So I wonder if you could expand on that a little bit. That's a good question. Some of it's very common sense. Uh, a teacher in Switzerland is highly esteemed in society. It's, it's, a, it's a chosen profession. I mean, there's the biblical expression that Teaching is God's chosen profession, and, and I think to a large extent a teacher is, is very much uh, revered in the Swiss society. They're also very well paid, have a lot of time off, so it's a, it's a, it really is a good profession. And I think that enables them to choose very good people to come into that profession, and that's something that's lacking um, from, what, from what I understand in, in this country and, and other places. I think more on the engineering side, which is also different, I don't think the Swiss have the, you know, everywhere you go in, say, the UK and America, you have the sense that you have to have a university degree. And if without a university degree, there's a sort of a negative stigma. And the Swiss don't believe that. Uh, they, they have a sense that university degrees should be reserved to a, a minority of the population who are academically inclined. And there's this so-called dual educational system, which uh, makes allowance for people that actually want to study skills and, and trades. And this fellow who I showed you from Schindler, he's making a very good living, and he's very well respected in society. And I, and I think that would have to change as well in order to sort of adjust for these egalitarian differences um, where you have a sort of a winner-take-all society um, with one system and you have a more egalitarian result from the second system. To follow up on that a little bit, because because uh, Bert did raise the question of sort of choice in it, and and certainly in United States education, we've seen increasing centralization, where instead of the school district, so more and more of the decisions are made at the state capital level. So you know, are there parallels? Is it fairly uh, you know how how decentralized? Well, I mean, Swiss, the Swiss education system is is, is also very decentralized. Um, we're trying to make a textbook out of this book. <laughs> And we're seeing just how difficult it is to, uh, we have to do it really on a, a canton by canton basis. Um, so it is very decentralized. Uh, and I, I think the other element is that, you know, teaching is not a unilateral relationship between parent and, and child. It's very important to have the parents involved, and that's why I put these statistics about the mothers. Um, but it's also the communities. You have these people volunteering on school boards that take a genuine interest in the community and the quality of the schools. Um, but it's, it's essential that there's a, a collaboration between the teachers and, and the parents and, and sort of a commitment and, and this idea of sort of having a you know, place where you can dump a child and let your 
let your your teacher raise them in a private school, it's something that doesn't um, doesn't sit well with the Swiss psyche. But here in front, uh, my name is Steve Hank, and I'd be interested. I'd be interested to know uh, what part uh, labor unions play and what kind of labor uh, laws they have there. Uh, uh, and specifically, are there, are there teacher unions like we have here that basically undermine education? No. Yeah, I, I, think, I think the Swiss sort of story, if you like, um, substantially benefited by the fact that it never really had heavy industry, the, the sort of industry sort of that required massive amount of capital and, or massive amount of labor labor and also massive amounts of capital, so automobile industry, steel industry, these sort of industries that lent themselves to a lot of people and, and therefore it sort of, you know, sort of stirred up the idea of, of unifying these people and, and joining forces in the, in the form of union and then having the abuses which ultimately led to the philosophies of Karl Marx, for example. This is something that just never had. I think the Swiss method of, of, and it's, you still, still see this today, is, is that the Swiss tend to like, and like to work in small units. So the, if you look at the evolution of the watch industry, it was in western part of Switzerland. There were farmers that farmed during the summer and during the winter. The women and the men, mainly women, put together watches during the winter. In the, western, in the eastern part of Switzerland with textile, same thing, summer farming, and then they had these spinning machines. And so you had a lot of atelier-type um, structures in Switzerland. Um, so they, they never really sort of got into this mold of you know, big, lots of people, cogs of wheels. Uh, it just, and I think that was more fortuitous uh, than it was by design, to be perfectly honest. So they, there's very few instances of strikes. Uh, in fact, one of them, I was just talking to someone from the textile industry who spoke at our event in London. He, didn't, he hadn't realized about this one big strike in Ooster, uh, which used to be sort of the Manchester of Switzerland. Um, but yeah, it, it hasn't been something. And actually, labor law is very uh, liberal. You you can fire people typically with uh, three. Th liberal in the European sense. Yeah, I mean, you, it's 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 a very from a, from a sort of a employer. It's it's a great place to have people because you can you know, contractually. It's typically a three month notice period. Um, the fact is, unemployment's three percent. So these people can find jobs elsewhere, which is the key thing. And then you have this sort of safety valve in the sense that a lot of these people are sort of working on border towns in Switzerland or, or coming sort of seasonal workers, et cetera. And those typically do not show up in the statistics. So, um, but the labor laws are very, I, mean, I use the word liberal. I, I don't know if that's the right, but it's, that's, I'm, I have to come up with a, maybe a different word, but it's, it's, it's very much in favor of the, the, the people giving the employment um, in that sense. Um, I think we've got time for one or two. Andre? Yes, please wait for the microphone. Right. Thank okay. You. Andre Lydon, Cato Institute. Um, we're talking about the Swiss, uh, Switzerland is decentralized uh, country, but it is not only country uh, such decentralized. There are many others. Uh, uh, Switzerland is a country with a small government, but it's not the only country with a small government. It is democracy, but it's not only the uh, country uh, with democratic system. It is Protestant country, but it's not the only Protestant country. And actually, part of Switzerland is not Protestant. Okay, what are the roots of the Swiss uniqueness? Well, you know, it's a cocktail, of course. It's uh, all these things. Um, you know, I, I used to write for The Economist, and I, I remember, I, I don't know if anyone follows Matt Ridley, who writes sort of, he's a zoologist and writes, um, you know, sort of stuff about Darwin and this sort of thing. But I, I was speaking to him about the book when I was interested in writing about it, and he says, well, you know, Switzerland's the Afghanistan of Europe. You know, it's, <laughs> and yeah, yeah, it's mountainous, and it's isolated, and, you know, what what's the difference between Afghanistan and, and Switzerland? So... I, it would probably be a long answer. I, I, you know, it sounds a bit self-serving to say you have to read the book, but um, you're right. Their company, Estonia, was mentioned. Latvia, um, the Balkans. There's, there's a lot of uh, examples of failed small companies, small countries, 
Um, there's brilliant examples of successes, Singapore, Denmark, um, you know, Scandinavian countries. Um, I, I think we've, I've tried to outline in the book uh, this combination of institutions, you know, education, government, um, entrepreneurialism, innovation. I, I, I do take exception with the fact that I do think the democratic system in Switzerland is truly unique. I, I really have not seen a country that has this direct, you know, where the, a government for the people, by the people, is so effective. I, I just, anyone in the audience that would like to challenge that, I would welcome to do that. But I think it's a truly unique system of um, where the where the individual citizen is, is really sovereign and puts a tremendous amount of um, control on their politicians and um, enables them to live within their means and, and have a, a small degree of government. And there I do think it's quite unique. But but successful entrepreneurs and companies and, yeah, I mean, it's a... It's Richard, Richard, you had something to add? Well, it was about 750 years ago, the Swiss, unlike many of the European neighbors, figured out it wasn't very productive to kill each other over differences in in language and religion and so forth. But that didn't mean they didn't believe in competition. And I think once they understood that they uh, need to be bound together for national security, that that didn't give up the competition. And there was a lot of competition between the various cantons, uh, much like sports teams. And they could disagree on a lot of things. But that competition, I think, helped build the Switzerland we see today of that individuality and um, also high tolerance for people with differing views. Um, but that doesn't mean they weren't out each one, each canton, go out and to prove its best. I, I think we have time for one more question. Uh, uh, lady in the back. Lots of questions out there. <laughs> well, fortunately, you will be around for a little bit more. Yang no Yoon. Foundation for Empowerment. I used to live in Geneva in Sorry, 2000. Could you hold the microphone yeah, a little closer? Mm. I used to live in Geneva in 2000, and I was, I'm was i going back to Switzerland very often. And then it's amazing to see the competency of the Swiss people in every part, like in the store, anything. They are really competent. And even in 2011, I was so impressed with the quality of people in Davos. So uh, you know, certainly it's really functioning. But my question is quite different. I'm working on international development. As an economist working on development, um, I am very inspired by the Swiss that the uh, Swiss used to be the uh, poorest country in Europe. 100 years, I mean, 400 or 500 years ago, but it became the most successful. As you say, it's a sort of Afghanistan of the uh, Europe. You know, in 2003, the, uh, uh, in Lucian, there was um, the uh, conference for CIS seven countries um, because Switzerland is representing all this CIS, almost all CIS seven countries at the World Bank as a uh, um, the board of direct, I mean, director of the board. At that time, the uh, Swiss, um, the finance minister had a convention over there because he is from there, and he was saying that they are to inspire the, uh, the all these CIS seven countries. He said Switzerland used to be so poor, but Gotthard Turner made a big difference. That's why he is having convening. He is convening the CIS uh, uh, 7 conference to inspire all these former, poorest former Soviet Union countries to be economic power. So my question is that what made really Swiss the, uh, uh, into so like a leapfrog to the, uh, uh, this kind of current development for I mean, lasting 100 years or 200 years? Yeah, I I think you you've just hit it on the head. Um, they were very hungry, and and they were very poor, and and people who lack resources tend to be very resourceful. Um, and I think we're you know we're seeing this in countries um, in Asia now that were also very poor countries. I mean, look look at South Korea. It used to be it, it used to be the North Korea of Korea. And it's now sort of the you know 
most of the people I speak to, I respect, consider it to be the probably the most competitive com country in Asia. Um, I suspect when they're very rich, they'll be less motivated. Um, so I, I think that's part of the element. I mean, in terms of the Gotard, I, I think it had a very important political, uh, it's probably the most important political factor in determining the geographical makeup of Switzerland because it, it really enabled traffic uh, between north and south. And I think the flow of people, this whole corridor from the Rhine all the way down to Italy um, was, was a, you know, a fantastic corridor in terms of people and flow. And we talked about the Jewish scientist. And um, you know, if people weren't happy with Germany, they could go to the, the German-speaking part of Switzerland. If they weren't happy in Italy, they could go to the Italian-speaking part of Italy. And, and it really wasn't that long ago when languages were a decisive border for people. It's, it's only very recent that people sort of speak English in all sorts of parts of the world. But if you spoke Italian, you, there, aren't that, there weren't that many places to go. And if, if you spoke German, there weren't that many places to go. So in, in that sense, the Swiss had a, was a preferred place for refugees who, for religious reasons or persuasion reasons, felt that uh, they weren't happy in the places that they uh, were living. Henry Nestle was a, a marginalized citizen in, in Germany outside of Frankfurt who just didn't agree with what was happening politically at the time in Germany. And he immigrated to the French part of Switzerland, and he was a pharmacist. He was dabbling, and he created, and he created this, uh, this um, infant formula out of milk, powdered milk, which probably you know, was one of the first industrial products of Switzerland. It was probably the most liberating products for women because it enabled them to work in factories um, while they were still having children. Uh, but uh, if it wasn't for him coming from Frankfurt, uh, maybe Nestle would be in, you know, maybe he would have gone to St. Louis or something instead. Who knows? But <laughs> well, uh, I, I want to thank our panelists. I want to also let you know we will have books outside for sale, and I know James will be around and happy to, to sign and, and answer any further questions.